This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This is an RNZ podcast. No my fakarongo mai kita autai fenua. Welcome to Country Life. I'm Sally Round. Great to have your company. I'm Duncan Smith. Today, Retired racehorses get used to a new life off the beaten track. And we hear about the best Christmas cakes in show. The New Zealand Agricultural Show, that is. We learn about the life of a deer colour in the 1960s, which ended in tragedy. And later, Sally pulls on her boots to explore a wetland built by some environmentally savvy dairy farmers. Just how did they make it and how does it work? But first, it's the beginning of the month and time for our roundup of conditions on the land. Northland welcomed a little bit of rain through November, which has caused the grass to take off, bumping up farmers' spirits. Positivity is waning, though, with schedules on both beef and lamb dropping. And farmers are bracing themselves. Will the summer bring a drought or another tropical cyclone? Changeable weather has prevailed in Pukekoe. Some rain on and off has kept crops growing, but irrigators have been on especially where crops have been exposed to the wind. Potatoes and early onions are being harvested with strong demand from the local and Pacific Island markets. The same can't be said for broccoli and lettuce, which are abundantly available at very low prices. At this stage, it's too early to predict prices for Christmas, but our contact says there could be some bargains. It's been a mixed month in Waikato. On balance, there has been a reasonable amount of rain and all the crops are generally in the ground. Plenty of silage is being made, although most are behind on production due to the wet spring. Contractors have been working until 3am to get the job done. Mating has also gone well with submission rates better than last year. And there's been a spike in morale due to the change in government, we're told. Bay of Plenty has seen some friendly weather throughout November. Consistent yet light rain has grown a ton of grass. One thing that needs managing is pasture going to seed, a reproductive state which doesn't provide much in the way of nutrients for livestock. The Rotorua A&P show is on this weekend on Saturday. This is the new date for the show. It's been brought forward a couple of months because of a lack of sheep and clashes with other events later in the summer. They need plenty of sheep for the shearing competitions. It's starting to warm up in King Country. Farmers are reporting cooler westerly winds and on the whole nice bits of rain. Cattle are doing nicely, but lambs are a bit behind due to a lack of sunshine. Our contact says it could be better, but it could also be a hell of a lot worse. With Christmas creeping closer, farmers are hoping to get some reprieve from the year. But not before another busy two or three weeks weaning and drenching lambs.
It's been a funny old month in Taranaki. The north of the region has had too much rain and not enough sunshine. Milk production has suffered because of the weather and the time of the year. In the south and closer to the coast, it's a different story. The area is below average, so any rain at this stage is good. Pastures are looking a bit yucky and have gone to seed too quickly. Farmers are glad to be saying goodbye to November. To Te Tairafati now, where the month started off all right, but a huge amount of rain last weekend upset things again. 300 millimetres of rain fell in some parts of the region, drowning crops, bringing forestry slash back down again and damaging access. It's the third time some have tried to sow their maize. Due to the low sunshine hours, lambs aren't doing so well and weaning weights are nowhere near where they would normally be. Farmers are now asking the sky for a month of sunshine. Hawke's Bay has been wet, surprising many who are looking forward to the forecast El Nino weather pattern. It's been a month of typical spring conditions, some days nice and warm and the next a bit gloomy. However, consultants are reminding farmers the region still could be seriously dry by the beginning of autumn. An olive grower in Wairarapa is feeling positive about the season ahead as buds have started breaking on the trees and even flowering in some parts. This promises a good fruit set come the end of summer. There's been some rain and cold blasts, making it hard to get outside and spray for disease during the flowering period. Our grower is also holding out for kind 18-degree temperatures for good pollination. While there's been the odd day like that, it's been followed by a chilly 12 degrees, less than ideal. Kitewai Ponamu across the Crook Strait. It's drier than normal and even feels warmer than normal in Nelson. That's been well received across the district. Growers are flat out trying to irrigate, but the conditions have also enabled them to catch up on tasks through the month. Haywood kiwi fruit is at the end of flowering, a few days behind recent years, but there's a strong sense the fruit set is good. Hand thinning of apples has started in the past week or so. Despite a reasonable fruit drop from the chemical thinners, there's still quite a bit of work to do. But thankfully, there are enough backpackers to keep up with demand. The word on the ground in Marlborough is it's very dry. Our contact had been driving across the South Island this week and has concluded, on looks, that Marlborough is drier than most. Grapes are going well, thanks to the sunshine. Some mornings farmers have woken to snow on the mountains though, but it would be hot again by the afternoon. Prime lambs are all gone and the last lot of cattle is scheduled to leave the farm gate next week. There's a sense the weather is back to normal, that is, less rain on the horizon, and it's getting many excited about dusting the boat off and having some time off farm. Farmers on the west coast have made it through the thick of the mating season with both submission and non-return rates looking good. There have been plenty of sunny days and a little bit of rain here and there. Milk production's peaked for one farmer in the middle of the month and now grass is throwing up seed head more than leaf. But for the most part, stock have been fed well. All the predictions of El Nino so far seem to be the opposite in Canterbury with cool, damp conditions and the odd warm day in between. When we checked in with a farmer this week, their log fire was going. Grass growth is OK, but there's not a huge surplus about. Our contact was interested to find the farm accounts from 1986 during the week. Lamb was $2 per kilo and wool $4.40. 
Otago had a bout of welcome rain last week. Parts of the region are getting rather dry. It's to be expected, although a little bit more rain to keep things going would be appreciated. Farmers are busy marking lambs and bulls are going out to the cows. November provided a mixed bag for Southland. Nice sunshine and the right amount of rain has left the region in a good place as it heads into summer. Grass is certainly growing, crops are coming out of the ground quickly and stock are happy. Lots of baleage is being made, although people are becoming nervous about the expected dry. This is Country Life on RNZ National 101 FM. Now Cosmo Kentish Barnes is taking us into a busy tent at the New Zealand Agricultural Show in Christchurch to meet the organiser of the Kiwi Christmas Cake Competition. I'm Christine Beaton from Leafield. I've been on the show committee for about 11 years now and we used to have a Christmas cake competition but people that had done it had done their dash so it went for a few years with nothing and I just sort of had a passion for cooking and I thought well give it a go and see if we can start it again and we made it as simple as we could just a 8 inch traditional cake with no decoration on top so you can't hide things and um, yeah we've got a great response with a lot of lovely cakes. Tell me about the cakes that are in competition. Yeah, there's, um, it was to be a traditional cake, but we've got some with a lot of nuts in, which is not a traditional, but it is a Christmas cake of the European and modern design. Mm. One has come from Western Australia as hand luggage. Um, my son and his partner came over uh, to see us, and I said, what about a cake? And she was going to make it when she got here, but my son said, if you have a dud, you'll blame the old girl's oven. And so you've got a cake in competition. I've got a cake in the competition, but mine is the lightest cake, so everybody has their own taste. How long have you been making Christmas cakes for? Uh, ever since I was a little girl with my great-grandmother. And I still use her crockery old bowl. One day it's got some cracks in it, one day it's going to disintegrate. What is a perfect Christmas cake for you? Uh, even distribution of the fruit, nice smooth top, even corners. We used to have square corners, but now with the modern cake tins, they've got round corners. So we've had to give away to the, the round corners. Um, I asked a lot of people why, and the main thing they said was ease of getting the cake out. But I always line my tins so you can get them out with paper, but I, I don't know really what the answer is. You like a square cake? I do, but we've got to give way to modern times. What are the judges looking for? Well, they're looking for a well-presented, excellent colour, size, clean lines. The evenness of fruit mix is very impressive to, to look at. So that is one that they like. The visual component. The visual component. Yes. The smell. Do they smell the cakes? They smell the cakes, but further of it all is taste. Just a lovely fruity and the texture is, is not smooth too dry. and not too dry, not too moist, but you don't know what's in the middle till it's cut. And they're all cut in half. They look rather like two bricks, don't they? 
They do. Um, the judges used a ruler to measure the size of the cake and they measured to go exactly through the centre. So they went through the centre of every cake. So very scientific. Everybody, everybody got the same chance. Because if you did go over to one side a wee bit, and it was a wee bit underdone in the middle, they could miss that. So everyone was cut exactly in half. There's one, two, three, four, five winning cakes. The, these are the three adult winning cakes. Um, the judges were really impressed with the one that won it. The taste was good. The top was nice and smooth and soft. No burnt fruit or overcooked fruit coming up through. There wasn't a lot between the first three cakes. Yeah, it must be quite hard to judge because they all look quite similar. Yeah, we had two judges. Uh, we had a past president of the show, a man, Richard Parks, and then we had Mrs Judith Hoban from Wipra, This is a great cook, and they judged them individually and then added them up and they both picked the first cake as the first cake. Are they scored out of 100? Out of 100, yes. And we also had a junior section for under 16s and we had two entries in that. The little girl that won it is Adele Lang from Wipra and she's just turned nine. And the other little girl, Rosemary Tapp from Swananoa, and she's about 11. So it was really, really good to see these two children have a go. How long does it take to make a Christmas cake? It takes quite a while to line your tin because to get the ease and sides, you've got to be pretty precise to get the square corners, uh, a ruler or an iron. And then mixing it is quite quick, but it's the cooking that takes the time. My one went in the oven at 130 degrees and was there four and a half hours. You, you don't really cook a Christmas cake, you dry it out. Yeah. The judges said one of the minor faults with them is that the ladies had and the gentlemen had their ovens too hot for a start and they've got them cooked on top but not underneath. A good tip for next time. A good tip for next time, yes. 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 Long and slow is the answer. And it's quite a popular display. There's been quite a few people coming and going. It has. It's been very, very popular. Yeah, um, we're really, really pleased with the response that we've had from the public and the comments. I guess um, next year you could have someone making a Christmas cake on site. Not really, because they're not going to wait to see it come out four and a half hours after, are they? That would require <laughs> a bit of patience, wouldn't it? What do you do when you're not making Christmas cakes? I'm a farmer. I normally exhibit sheep but I gave away the sheep this year because I'd had an accident and I couldn't hold them, plus I replaced it with the Christmas cake. Well, congratulations. This is a really impressive display and it's really good to celebrate the cake, the Christmas cake. It is, and it, it's good that there is some home bakers. A lot of these entrants are young people, which is absolutely brilliant. Mm. And there are quite a few men as well who've put entries in. Our Vice President said he was going to put in one, see if he could beat his wife. So he put a challenge out at the meeting, have a go. It's only a $10 worth of fun. And he got third. He beat his wife. So he's a very happy man.
Did you get to have a nibble on some of these cakes? I did. I cleaned up after each cake was judged. I cleaned up the crumbs. So I do not want another piece of Christmas cake for some time. But no doubt when that one comes out, there'll be a nibble with a coffee Monday morning. Christine Beaton there beside the Christmas cake display at the New Zealand Agricultural Show in Christchurch. I wonder if she's a relative of the famous Mrs Beaton of cookbook fame. Hmm. Yeah, I wondered that too, Duncan. Louise Myish has been on a decades-long journey to uncover the story of her Uncle Frank, one of New Zealand's most prominent deer hunters of his era. By 1965, at the age of 30, Frank Ersig had established a reputation as a prominent marksman and mountaineer. Leah Tebbett caught up with Louise to hear about Frank and the history of the deer culling industry in New Zealand. We knew about our Uncle Frank, that he was an adventurous, interesting man who led a, a really quite fascinating life for his sadly short life. But uh, no, there weren't many family stories and there weren't many photos. So he really was someone that I grew to want to discover and, and write about. And that you've done, you know, over the past, is it two decades, you've undertaken a lot of research and it's all compiled into your book, Finding Frank. I'm guessing you have a better picture of of who he was, which, you know, the book was essentially about the life of your uncle, but in fact, I think it's also turned into the history of the deer culling industry in New Zealand as well. Yes, it has, yes. And that came about because if I was writing about Frank and his years with the deer, colour and I needed to know what led up to that, why these men were out in the mountains eradicating what was then known as a pest, what his work was and where where it came from, why there were so many deaths. So from the 1930s when deer culling first started to 1956, they killed over a million deer and Frank came in in 1956 when the New Zealand Forestry Service took over from Internal Affairs and that there was too many deer, according to the government of the day, and they had to, had to be eradicated. And I think he loved the thrill of it all because he was more of a South Island shooter. So he was Canterbury, Central Otago, and the West Coast, and, and definitely South Westland down the Haast area. So that's very, very mountainous terrain and difficult passes that he would have to cross over. And I, I, I just think he loved it. He loved those challenges and he loved the country. What amazes me is talking about the difficult terrain that he was in and nowadays we obviously have more advanced technology and in terms of really mountaineering across parts of the world that people probably hadn't had much experience on. You know, do you know what it was like to be that in those days? Well, yeah, I mean, they just really knew how to look after themselves. They didn't have, like you say, the modern technology that we have today very basic equipment. They had to know how to get through those mountain passes and get out of difficult situations. And they really did learn on their feet. They might have a a rudimentary place to to sleep. They may have made a little lean-to tent. They may have found what's called a dry rock and slept under that. They may have crossed a very trickling stream in the morning to go out for a day's hunt and then the rain would come down, especially on the west coast. And so that small stream that they crossed over in the morning ankle deep was a a torrent that um, they'd have to wait out to get back over. So 
they had nothing. They were on their own. And do you know what happened to that deer culling industry? How did how did that sort of wind down? Frank was right on the cusp of it winding down. So what happened was the helicopters came in. They realised that there was money to be made in the, the venison. So rather than all those years of the government hunters shooting the beast, the meat decaying, they realised with the helicopters coming in they could retrieve the animals off the mountain and it was the beginning of the venison export industry in New Zealand, which hadn't stopped. So, yes, to answer your question, it was the helicopters. And, I mean, speaking of helicopters, we've mentioned that Frank's life was short, but I understand that that was the result of um, him and his friend were killed in a helicopter hunting accident, and it was the first helicopter hunting accident, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, it was just awful, awful, tragic event. So the accident happened on June the 1st, 1965, and it was in the Matukituki Valley, just west of Wanaka. Fairly high up, just above the tussock line on the mountains. So Frank was with his hunting mate, Johnny Cumming. And on that day, uh, while dragging deer carcasses to the craft, they came into contact with the rotor blades and both died instantly. About six months later, they employed a um, different system where they had a long cargo strop so that the helicopter was elevated away from the ground and the deer were clipped on and hauled off the mountain that way so you could not come into contact with the blades. But yes, that ended both Frank and Johnny's lives. I think Johnny was only 29 and Frank was in his 30th year. Really horrible. With that small hazy image that you have as a preschooler in your head, what is your memory of him now that you know everything that you know? Obviously, you don't have a tangible memory, but, I mean, what's the image that you now have of, of your uncle in your head after this project? Well, you're bringing tears to my eyes right now because Frank's always been here with me on this journey. I just have gotten to know him over these past, actually, 25 years. It was 1998 that I started out this journey. I just feel so grateful and so full of love for this journey that, in a way, we've both been on. He will be a part of New Zealand's history. Louise Myers talking about her uncle, Frank Ersig. And you can learn more about Frank and the deer culling industry in Louise's book, Finding Frank. Kia my name's Quinn Morgan. I'm the Ahu Whenua, a young Māori farmer of the year for 2021. And you're listening to Country Life on RNZ National. Just south of Christchurch is an equestrian hub with a large indoor arena and several paddocks where horses graze peacefully. Cosmo's there with horse trainer, educator and equine entrepreneur Chanel Dickey. We're standing in my stable block at Selwyn Equestrian Centre in Burnham and we hire out all the arenas. Um, I have grazing and adjustment horses so people pay to keep their horses here. Um, what else do we do? We've got a shop here, a Western tech and apparel shop, so all imported gear from America. Because Western, it's harder to find the tech and the gear. You can walk into any saddlery here and find English stuff, but good quality Western gear is really hard to find in New Zealand. So it was a COVID lockdown idea for me to start bringing that in. So yeah, we've got a shop. Um, we run events like shows, clinics, Stanbury Club, coffee club. Yeah. Anything to do with Anything horses. horsey. We try to accommodate, yes. 
And what were you doing before you came here? I was a flight attendant, actually. I was the cab manager for Jetstar for eight years. And I had just kind of come to the end of my flying career. I was, it wasn't doing it for me anymore. I, yeah, I needed a change and desperately did not know what to do where horses was always ticking over in the background anyway. So were your parents, you know, passionate about horses? Uh, my mum's always been into her race horses. Her dad had race horses and then she's had race horses. And my dad, he used horses on the farm as stock horses. So we grew up on a big, big farm, about 10,000 acres down in Southland, um, sheep, beef and deer. And I had a really fat old pony called Polly and I was just sort of plonked on her back since I was about two years old, I guess. So I kind of didn't know any different, really. Mm. Do your parents still farm? Uh, my dad actually passed away about seven years ago. So no, he doesn't. <laughs> um, but my mum my lives here with me. She just has the jobs of like mowing the lawns and the gardening here. Mm -hmm. Now we are standing beside a large horse truck here and packed inside are some western style saddles and other horsey equipment. Yes, so this weekend uh, we're heading away to a barrel racing jackpot and a roping jackpot. My partner ropes, I also rope. Um, but I'm better at my barrel racing. But yeah, previous weekend we were at Christchurch A&P and I was English, so that's where I'm quite unique, really. I guess I flip-flop between English and Western each weekend. And you won an event at the A&P show. Yes, our, our wee young boy, um, his name's Does It On His Ear, he's only three years old, but he managed to take away champion in-hand standard at Christchurch A&P and kind of surprised us all. So in hand, you just lead the horse out for the judge and best-looking horse wins, essentially. Yeah. And the ridden, it's a bit more training involved. You've got to, well, I have to break the horse into saddle because these are all ex-race horses I've got. So they haven't actually had a rider on them. So you break them into saddle, get them going super nicely, walk, trot and canter, and then just ride them in circles around the judge. And again, she picks the best-looking one. So you get surplus to requirement racehorses and you give them a new lease of life? Yes, so just the standard breeds ones, which are the ones that trot or pace, pulling a sulky behind them. I can't even count how many I've done. 70, 80, possibly more I've rehomed. And I probably own about nine standard breeds myself currently. It's windy out there, but let's wander out and meet some of your retrained horses. Okie doke. Okay, so this one just here is Fly. She went through the Hero Programme. She's very friendly. <laughs> She's having a good sniff of my recording apparatus, aren't you? Hello. So she is six and she's qualified for Horse of the Year, so we're heading up to Hastings in March. What's the Hero Programme? What does that mean? So Hero is, I think it actually stands for Harnessing Education and Retraining Opportunities. But it's run by Harness Racing New Zealand. It's their scheme to show that they're, they care about the life after racing and the, the standard breed breed. So they're not just breeding and getting rid of them, essentially. They're showing that they care about what happens to them once they're finished. Do you purchase them or are they gifted to you? Um, they all have been gifted. I haven't actually ever paid for one. Um, I was already rehoming racehorses and Georgie, who is the facilitator of Hero, uh, approached me to do it under their banner, essentially. So they just give me standard breeds to rehome. Do you get 
ex-racehorses coming from all over the country or is it mainly from the Canterbury region? I just get the Canterbury region. We also have a hero retrainer up in Auckland and we have another lady, another girl, sorry, up in North Canterbury and we also have one down in Southland. So, yeah, we get from our local areas. What's the process? How do you approach retraining a racehorse? So I actually find standard breeds remarkably easy. She's going to eat the microphone. (laughs) (laughs) Um, They already have had something they call a saddle round their tummy, which is not a not a traditional saddle like we all know it's just um, a girth essentially around their tummy so they've had that before they've had a bridle on they've had a bit in their mouth they know how to steer and stop they've had so much handling so essentially the only thing they need is weight on their back and pressure of your legs on either side they that's new to them have you been bucked off when trying to do that no nope not what touch wood touch wood <laughs> no I haven't um, I act confident around them give them nothing to worry about if I got on a little bit cautiously and they're like oh oh something's happening oh I need to be anxious right now then potentially but no I just talk to them and just act like everything's normal yes. and jump straight on This one is Levy, she's my barrel racer, she's been very, very successful. Last year though she was very sick, she went um, underwent colic surgery, so she's super lucky to be alive right now. So she's half quarter horse, half thoroughbred, and yeah, very fast. What do you love about barrel racing? It's the biggest adrenaline rush that I've ever found. You sit in the box ready to go and you don't know whether you're going to vomit or pass out and then you do your run and you get out and like, oh my god, I want to go again. You have to get around the course as quickly as possible without what knocking down any of the barrels. That's correct. Um, we've just had Methven Rodeo, what was that, three weeks ago? And that horse and I, we managed to do it in 16.6 seconds and that was only fifth out of the top girls in New Zealand all came to that one. So we're very, very happy. Mm. So has the season just got underway? Yes, we've only had those two rodeos, Winchester Rodeo and Methven Rodeo at Labour Weekend, and our next outing will be Boxing Day at Miller's Flat. How much fun is it hitting the road with your horses? Oh, there's, yeah, it's the dream, literally living the dream. A lot of hard work, a lot of blood, sweat and tears and early mornings, and, yeah, there's a lot go into it, but no wouldn't have it any other way. This here is Duke. He's a pacer that won one race, but then, yeah, decided he didn't want to race anymore. Are all harness racing horses rehomed once they no longer do the racing? No, that's a good question. Um, some of them we don't deem suitable for rehoming due to either an injury they've had or their attitude sometimes they're just not interested in doing it or wouldn't be safe in a new home um yeah so we carefully select which ones are going to be rehomed and yeah unfortunately some do not make it so the other ones what i put down uh yeah or they females become broodmares quite often Mm. males could be a paddock um a paddock mate for another horse or a, a paddock mates for young foals and weanlings coming through. But sometimes, I hate to say it, but the best option is 
to put them down if you know that they're not going to be looked after, if they're just going to be thrown in someone's back paddock, not fed, not farried, cared for, not wormed, not... So the better option for them is to be put down if they're just going to be forgotten about. Yeah. Is it quite hard to find homes for them? I haven't struggled at all. Through the Heroes scheme, my ones don't normally even make it to the advertising stage. They're normally snapped up before we actually get to advertise them. They often end up in hands of beginners, which is fine because they've got beautiful natures, but they are also very new on their journey of being ridden too. So a green horse in the hands of a green rider is not always a great combination. So we only ever let them go if they have another horse at home. We don't like just one horse living alone. They're a herd animal. And, yeah, they have to come here and ride in front of me and show me their skills, and I just base their competency on what I see. And they come a couple of times at least. And I don't know many horses that I've let go that haven't sort of had a tear in my eye if they've gone down the driveway. Yes. And the moment we enter your property, there is a pink theme. <laughs> Tell me about that. You're even wearing a pink top. Yes, well, yes. I guess I've always liked pink and I like to stand out and not fit in. So it's become the branding, but not on purpose, purely by accident. <laughs> and now people just see pink things and think of me. Chanel Dickey there at the Selwyn Equestrian Centre. Be good to people, animals and the environment and they'll treat you well. That's the motto of the dairy farm I visited for our feature story this week. Its shareholders have backgrounds in dairying, but also earth-moving, science, accounting and farm consulting. All handy skills for building a wetland on the farm. Kia ora, I'm Aidan Bicken. I'm a uh, first-generation dairy farmer. I, I grew up in uh, Cannons Creek in Porirua, uh, went to Massey, did an ag degree, and uh, have ended up uh, being a uh, shareholder and uh, director of Kaiwaiwai Dairies in the South Wairapa. Uh, my passion is around developing people uh, and, and improving and developing and encouraging the environment and, and those who operate in it. Kaiwaiwai Dairies milks 900 cows on 325 hectares, supplying milk through the year. But it's the on-farm environmental projects which set this farm apart. They're not only harvesting milk here, but also solar energy to power a lot of the operation. They're saving water and cleaning up after themselves. Today, we're checking out a corner of the property which acts as a kind of scrubbing brush. So how big is this area of wetland, so you have, So there's about half a hectare of water um, in there, and it's a bit hard to describe on uh, radio just what we're looking at here, but if you can imagine a, a whole series of S-curves that have been squashed up, uh, there's 12 of those through the wetland, so from the inlet at the, uh, the, the northern end to the outlet here, uh, it goes back and forward 12 times. It's piped from the farm drainage system that, that drains probably 200 hectares of the Battersea area. Flows at somewhere around 30 to 60 litres of water per second flowing through, so it's quite a big drain. We've just tapped into that, fed that water through the wetland, drop it back out into, a, into the drain, basically, 
and then that heads off down into um, the Wairapa Moana. What this is aimed to do was to take nitrates out of the water. Cow urine, fertiliser and plants all contribute to the nitrate load. Too much in the waterways jeopardises the environment and human health. Once it was in and established, we monitored the inlet and the outlet every month for, I think, six, six or seven years. And we know that it's taking out somewhere between half and three quarters of a tonne of nitrate out of the water every year. We've got a relatively low nitrate loss uh, per hectare, somewhere between 15 and 17 kilos of N per hectare. Uh, part of the reason for that and, and the reason for our interest in the wetland is because we've got a pan under most of the farm, we don't lose nutrient into groundwater. It doesn't go down, it tends to go sideways. If it goes sideways, it ends up in a drain. If it ends up in a drain, we can put it through a wetland and scrub it or, or polish it. And, and that's what this was basically demonstrated to do. So this was funded um, partially through the um, government's kickstart for, for fresh water in about 2014 or 15. Um, we designed the wetland uh, with the help of people like uh, Greater Wellington, uh, Niwa, I think the Cawthron Institute may have had a hand in there somewhere as well, um, and a company called Ground Truth. So it's a decade old now? Yes, yes, this is its uh, ninth or tenth season. Shall we wander through a little bit closer? So this, this is the outlet, and um, you, you always need a little bit of Kiwi ingenuity. The bay is six metres wide. It's 300 mils deep because the, uh, the experts from Niwa said we need to be between about 200 and 500 in depth so that we get the proper processes and we don't produce methane, we produce nitrogen gas. Sitting in under here under this outlet is a, uh, a 200 litre drum that's uh, been cut in half, filled with rocks and sunk to the bottom so that gives us our height uh, control and then just a pipe out of the bottom of that that goes back out into the drain. And we've got some electronic technology on the outlet just so we know that it's flowing. And um, the original we, we planted with uh, Raupu, so that's what we've got in here is um, bulrush, but we also planted giant club rush, uh, but we found that that clogged up the waterway and we had to remove it all after about five or six years. And we also put in cutty grass but we raised the water level a bit quickly and the cutty grass all drowned. So we've got Raupu in here and a bit of club brush. And that just helps filter the water. The way the process works is the bacteria in the water use carbon and nitrogen. Um, so the carbon comes from either the bulrush stems and breaking down material or from the peaked soil that this is built in and they use the carbon and then they grab the nitrogen out of the water and that creates the microbial proteins and bacterial uh, processes and produces nitrogen gas as well. So that's how the water, uh, the nitrate comes out of the water through that process. I'm not a, not a chemist, so don't hold me to the exact details. So this is the exit for the wetland. Could you drink that water? I'd quite happily drink that. As, um, really? As, uh, yeah, perhaps my constitution might not be quite used to chlorinated town water, but uh, is it still potentially got E. coli? You know, there's 
wildlife living in their wetland and things as well. So, no, you know, no, you probably shouldn't drink it there, but we know that there's a lot less nitrate in there. Um, at times, this time of year, once the temperature's above about 10 or 11 degrees, we're taking out 95 to 99% of the nitrate that comes through. In winter, when the temperature's um, getting below 10, it still takes half the nitrate out. So it is quite temperature-dependent for the processes, for the bacteria. But, um, you know, that's nice, clean water. Um, in there, we've got a bit of technology here. Um, yes, on, the, on this that. pole just above the drain, the outlet here, is, uh, is that a solar panel? Yes, so um, it's part of our harvest. Um, technology that we use for monitoring. So we've got, I think, probably around 100 different data feeds from the farm. So we've got weather stations, soil moisture, uh, we measure all our water pumping so we know how much we use in the shed. We can see instantly if there's leaks on the farm instantly overnight uh, in there. Uh, we measure the flow uh, or the, the, the depth of flow and the conductivity in the wetland um, what else have we got? Uh, effluents managed, irrigations all managed. And, and we're a little bit around that sort of what you can't measure, you can't manage. The banks of the wetland are now thick with vegetation. Um, so this block of trees in here... Um, and this is some natives that are over our heads now. Yes, so these were planted in 2019. In fact... In November 2019, um, the farm was a Fonterra open gates host for the three years the programme ran, and we had 400 trees donated through that. And um, how better to get them planted than to get the public doing it? <laughs> um, we had 680 uh, people came in, predominantly from Wellington, um, and there, uh, that particular year, we had 10 mils of rain during the course of the day. And I think the best memory I had. Um, but yeah, so these things here, so some of these trees now, yeah, they are manukas here, they're um, a good, uh, probably getting up to two and a half to three metres in height. Looking very healthy. Very healthy, very pleased with this stand. So all we put into this... We wander past bends in the channels, leaving behind the outlet and head towards where the water comes in. One of the things I'd, I'd thought about in here was, could we grow watercress in here and then perhaps every month we could harvest a bay on a 12-month rotation? Um, and there, but um, again, uh, we haven't quite got there. We've got cow parsley instead. Not quite as tasty. Not as good, no, a bit bitter uh, in there. So the inlet here is, um, from the north, there's about 200 metres of pipe that come through to the tanks here. Um, we measure this. The original design was to put 10 litres per second of water into the wetland. Um, we upped that to 14 litres a second when we discovered that we are taking all the nitrate out. And we've got a vision of trying to double that again and get that up to either 20 or maybe even 28 litres a second. So this is um, Kiwi Ingenuity. Again, it involves a couple of 200-litre uh, plastic drums uh, that have been cut to capture the water flow. And if we open the lid... And here, um, you can see, we used to have a resident kura in here, but um, 
perhaps one of the resident eels have found him. <laughs> in this um, drum? Yes, he lived at the bottom in here. I'm interested to know how crayf- uh, freshwater crayfish, a colder, would want to live in the dirtiest part of the wetland. Um, well, I think the drainwater is not that, you know, it's nutrient rich, but it doesn't have a lot of sediment coming through on that side of it. And, and it's, there's a there's a, be a fair volume of food actually comes through there. He'd be living in the still water in the bottom of the drum where that food would settle out. So I, I, he was quite big in there. But um, there's three ways he could have come in or out. He can, could have come in from the wetland. We've definitely got kura and uh, tuna in there. Uh, it could have come from the drain that we piped the water. Or he could have actually possibly come in from the outlet, uh, the overflow. But, uh, but probably he came from the drain originally. Any other wildlife in here? Well, there's plenty of ducks. We've had um, the Australasian um, harrier um, nesting in the raupu uh, in there and fledging chicks uh, over time. Um, Pukekos, shell ducks, ducks. But we did a bio blitz with several of the local schools with the Enviro Schools programme and we had uh, regional council, um, Greater Wellington staff, we had DOC and spent a half a day in here and they identified all the species in the wetland and the pastures around it. Just standing here, you, know, you look, we've got all the natives' plantings in the bank, we've got cuddy grass in here, we've obviously got cow pasture, you've got all your pasture species, um, rye grasses and uh, tall fescue, coxfoot, clover, dandelions, uh, uh, stinging nettle, uh, shepherd's purse. What else can I see here? Your Buttercup. dairy cows yeah. would definitely have a field day if they came in here, wouldn't yeah, they? No, they're not. They, uh, they, uh, they're not allowed in the gate. The farm team don't do anything in the wetland. That's the owner's sort of patch um, in there, which is just yeah. This isn't part of the farm. This is you know it's an environmental hobby. And what's your motivation for this, Aidan? This is about um, being a role model. Wetlands have got a, a real place on on any farm but you know on dairy farms F- to do this sort of thing is to polish the water before it leaves the farm so at the bottom of the catchment at the bottom of the farm is this may be something that can can help and definitely we've demonstrated that it, it works and it does help um, this was a lot more expensive to build because the plantings if we didn't put plant the banks, so we just built the wetland. This was about $27,000, but it probably wasn't even that much to establish the wetland, plus the value of the land. So there's three quarters of a hectare of land that that was perfectly good pasture prior to the wetland going in. Um, and the, but um, it's about being a role model. It's about doing the right thing. This has got a great biodiversity value. It's got a great demonstration value. It's a good talking point that, um, you know, here's an opportunity to other farmers. And so I get phone calls from you know, Canterbury. I've had them from Northland, Waikato, saying, hey, what have you guys done? What can we learn from that? What can we pick up? And what do you tell them? What are your tips? Well, design is... um, We went through four or five designs before we came up with this iteration. Um, And and they range from a big swimming pool through to little wee skinny channels that were miles long. But one of our... Another partner is um, an earth-moving contractor, so he understood the the issues around dirt. And basically the channels are are six metres wide because that's the width that a digger can drive down and clean out and put the fill, the spill up onto the banks. Um, Three metres of bank was enough to hold that spill. 
in there. So it was really efficient to build from a machine point of view. It's efficient from, there's uh, I think 720 or 800 odd metres of channel in here in half a hectare or three quarters of a hectare. So it's, there's a, it's more than half water in there. So very efficient design. And, you know, talk to lots of people, go and look at, what people are doing so we host a lot of visitors through here as well and then just get out there and do it you know have a go um in there you know half a hectare in the bottom corner of your farm is um you know makes everything better and yeah this is a great place to come and sit we'll we'll head over under the kakatiya and um, have a look but it's a nice place When we started this, we didn't really know what it was going to do or how it was going to work. It worked from day one because we built in a peat soil. Uh, there's another another constructed wetland around the road a wee bit in a different soil type. And that's taken several years to build up enough organic matter from the plantings. So that's taken a while to get enough carbon into the system for the bacteria to then extract the nitrate. Might be a little bit slippery underneath with the, uh... We take a track onto one of the peninsulas on a bend in the wetland where the trees are firmly established and seedlings are popping up voluntarily. As we walk, Aidan tells me the market's sending clear messages to farmers about the need for such kaitiakitanga. But he says it's about future generations too. I, I want to leave this in a better place for our children and, and grandchildren um, uh, in there. I, I want to get our story out there that um, actually farmers are not the evil people that some quarters would perhaps like to present uh, in there. So a bit of a pushback on some of that rhetoric. And I think also is... Um, you know, is, is make sure that there's science at the table as well, not just emotion. Um, you know, our licence to farm is at the end of it is, is probably governed by emotion and some organisations are very good at um, you know, putting unpleasant photos in um, the national media in the UK about some of our farming practices in there. So we just want to make sure we get some of the other side of that story out as well. And I don't think the general public actually believes that farmers are bad they just don't get the opportunity to have that conversation and if we can provide a bit of that, that's good Aidan Bicken of Kaiwaiwai Dairies in South Wairarapa on the wetland at the bottom of the farm look out for some of the open days and walking tours they host every so often well that's about all we've got time for, koi nā mō tēne wā now don't forget to go to our webpage for more info on the stories you've heard today and photos of the people behind the voices. The address is rnz.co.nz slash countrylife. And you can also subscribe to Country Life as a podcast. You can find it on any podcast platform. Kakite anō. Bye now. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com 
or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.